You are now listening to the November 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. I am your host, Joseph McDonald, with a program focused on a special grace that we receive from God our Savior, and we in turn should therefore share this grace with others. This is Forgiveness. Last time, we looked at Matthew chapter 18 and shared the story of a slave that had been forgiven an astronomical amount of debt. 10,000 talents. We then saw how he failed to extend that same generosity to another slave. His master rebuked him for not having mercy on his fellow slave like he had received. The master admonished the slave and handed him over to the tormentors. The master devised a time of torment for the slave because the master wanted him to experience what it feels like to lack mercy and forgiveness. We might then raise a question. Why did the slave that had been forgiven of his astronomical debt at the tune of 10,000 talents not show mercy to his fellow slave? It seems like the slave should have been in a state of exceptional joy after having been forgiven of such a large debt. In fact, as we read his story in Matthew chapter 18, we see that he did not seem to realize the scale of the money he owed his master. His debt was 10,000 talents, and 10,000 talents was an astronomical sum. It is the equivalent of 160,000 years of labor by a single worker without a break. At first, his master wanted the debt to be paid. He ordered everything the slave owned to be sold, including his wife and children. Then the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before his master. The slave pleaded with his master, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Did he really think that he could repay 10,000 talents if he had more time? Some of you may think, who knows? Maybe he has some source of a lot of money coming from somewhere. However, when Jesus told us this parable, Jesus intentionally used 10,000 talents as a sum so large that it could not be repaid. We see that the slave didn't realize how big his debt was. Otherwise, he would have been able to claim he would pay back the whole sum. In other words, the slave did not know what unimaginable grace he received when his master forgave him of his debt, simply because he did not know how big his debt was. The reason why the story does not tell us about his gratitude or joy after being forgiven is because he did not comprehend the magnitude of his master's grace. That's why he immediately jumped on his fellow slave, choking him, asking him to repay all the debt that he was owed. Let us now push the pause button and reflect on ourselves. Do we carry a grateful heart for being forgiven for our enormous sins, as in the amount of 10,000 talents? If we do, 
how could we justify not forgiving others that might have sinned against us? What is most important is our gratitude and joy that we have been reconciled with God and become his children. Do you have gratitude and joy in your heart because you are God's child? If the answer is no, we may be saying that we are no different from the ungrateful slave even after his enormous debt was just canceled. It could be that we might not realize how big our debt actually is. My hope is that we all would come under God's grace and be a grateful servant that deeply appreciates the unimaginable size of debt that God has forgiven us. Today, I want us to turn to Colossians 1, verses 21 through 22. This is what it reads. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The word reconcile means to bring two hostile parties and help them overcome their differences. They might even become friends. In this regard, the word reconcile presupposes some sort of disagreements, disputes, or fights between the two parties. After reconciliation, the two hostile parties are now able to see things eye to eye and be on friendly terms. In fact, the scripture verses we read from Colossians 1.21 tells us how we were previously alienated and hostile toward God. Once we were God's enemies, but now we are reconciled. What does this mean for us on a personal level? Have you ever thought about the state of reconciliation you have between God and perhaps between other people you know? Could you be friendly to those who do not understand you or listen to you? You know, there are those that do the things that you ask them not to do, and there are those that do not do the things that you ask them to do. There are those that you ask to come that end up pulling away, and those that you ask to go away that end up imposing themselves on you. Could we overlook these annoyances and become close, perhaps even friends with these people? Further, could we ever learn to love them? That would be hard. We are more inclined to push these types of people away from us, thinking to ourselves, what an outrageous fellow, how dare he ignore me? Who do you think you are? We are more likely to stay away from these people. After all, we are only human, and it's very hard for us to get along with people who are hostile towards us. These thoughts are fairly common. However, they start to look different once we turn the tables around and look at things from God's perspective. We did not listen to God. We rebelled against God. When he called us to come, we moved away. And when he told us to go, we stayed right where we were. We behaved just like those who we said earlier annoyed us and we would have every right to stay away from. Yet, God did not stay away from us. He did not hate us or resent us. Rather, God sent us his only son as a ransom for our sins of disobedience. 
When I think about myself standing before God, I begin to see the magnitude of his grace. My sin is so much bigger than 10,000 talents, and I would never be able to repay that debt to God. I actually did not do anything to pay the debt. However, God still forgave me all of my debt. I was on the receiving end of an immeasurable mercy because he had compassion on me. God forgave me. God now has a friendly relationship with me. This is grace. This week, would you meditate on the scripture that we read earlier? Colossians 1 verses 21 through 22. God has forgiven us and reconciled with us, even though we were alienated from him and hostile toward him, engaged in evil deeds. God wants to present us before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. This is God's forgiveness. This is what Jesus did by dying on the cross for us. I pray in earnest that we come to understand the grace of God and to learn to really appreciate the magnitude of his grace demonstrated through his forgiveness in our lives. Our sins were forgiven by God before we forgave others that may have sinned against us. Forgiveness. Let us continue next time.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is comfort. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We're looking today at what I think to be one of the most paradoxical statements that we find in the Beatitudes. Now, you'll remember that each of these, there's a sense in which if you were to take it on its own, it looks a little bit strange on its head. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe it seems strange to us, but would it have seemed strange to Jesus's original audience? And I think that if you're wondering what it would have looked like for them to have heard that, I think they would have had Genevieve's face like, well, I don't even know how to have a happy face that's sad at the same time, right? Like, how do you do that? How do you work that out? Well, as I said last time, as we're looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and this introduction in the Beatitudes, We're looking at this, and I'm following Jonathan Pennington's uh, work, which I believe understands rightly the Greek word for blessed that's repeated through each each beatitude. 
And I think it's actually better translated as happy or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is the same word that you see in the Greek version of Psalm 1, where it talks about the blessed man as one who is like a tree that is planted next to a stream of water, and he is fruitful. He is a flourishing tree. This is the picture of what it looks like to be the man, I believe, that Psalm 1 speaks of and that Jesus is speaking of in the Beatitudes. So as we are looking here, what really seems to be happening is Jesus is launching this sermon on the Sermon of the Mount with a picture, an introduction to a flourishing life. What does it look like to be in a good place here on earth? See, here I I think that it's fascinating that Jesus is responding and speaking to an audience of of Jews and and, and also Gentiles who have been affected by a Greco-Roman understanding of the world. And there were all kinds of philosophies of what the good life looked like. Some said a good life is one where you get as much pleasure as you can while you can, and then you die. That's what, the life, that's what life is. Others said, well, you know what? I think that there's actually something more internal that's not so dependent on external joy and pleasure. It's more about virtue. Are you living a virtuous life? Well, here we have Jesus coming as the king of the kingdom of heaven descending on earth. And as he begins to, to speak, he is speaking with a, a theological vision of what it looks like to live the good life. You want to know if you're in a good place? Jesus says, I've got a message that didn't sort of spring up from earth and the philosophies of this world to heaven, but one that has come down to us from God. I am the king of this kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, I believe that that is what that little phrase, kingdom of heaven, throughout Matthew means. It is a unique expression. In fact, if you you look elsewhere, you won't find kingdom of heaven in other literature in the Bible. And I think the reason that Matthew is using this term kingdom of heaven for the kingdom of God, he uses it 32 times throughout his gospel. He is trying to give us a vision of how different God's kingdom is from the kingdoms of this world. He says it should make sense that it looks upside down from your vantage point. It is descending on you. And so as we are looking throughout the Beatitudes this morning, we are looking at what is seemingly the most paradoxical of them all. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. They are the ones who are flourishing. Jesus has truly ushered in the kingdom of heaven, and we really possess it. I'm sure the Jew of Jesus' day had to be asking, why hasn't Jesus immediately reversed all of our fortunes? Why hasn't he issued that final judgment on the nations that he promised us in the prophets. Well, Matthew 13 is the center of this gospel. And one of the things that that becomes clear in Matthew 13 is that Jesus is showing that there is an already not yet nature to the nature of the kingdom that's come to us. In fact, even as we look at the Beatitudes, as we began last week, you'll remember that the first and the last, a present reality. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you'll notice that the middle six that we're going to be going through speak of future promises. Theirs will be. uh, They will be comforted. So we're looking here at an already not yet reality. Now, as we are going through this, you might ask yourself, well, why is there such an unfolding nature to the kingdom of God? 
Well, there are a lot of answers in the New Testament. We just recently saw a couple in 2 Peter 3, you remember, where Peter told his audience the kingdom didn't just drop down all at once. One, because God's timing is not our timing. With him, uh, one day is, is, is a thousand years to us. Uh, but second, uh, we are told by Peter that we need to understand God's patience as salvation. In other words, God is patient for us because if he did drop judgment on that day, who could have stood apart from faith in Christ and his death on the cross? We needed time to come to faith and put our faith in his plan. But you might be asking yourself, well, how do I, how do I actually apply these? Because there are a lot of different people that have different answers to how we apply these. I'm just going to give you three, three dimensions of understanding these that I want you to be thinking through as you're thinking through these throughout. Okay, I believe that there's a three-dimensional way that we understand the Beatitudes, each of them, uh, particularly the middle six. I believe that there is a way in which they are actual. There is a sense in which they are aspirational. And there's also a sense in which they are anticipatory. Now, here's what I mean. There is a sense in which these actually speak of Christians after Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. Christians are poor in spirit. They are distinctively so. But there's also a sense in which they are aspirational. None of us are as poor in spirit as we ought to be. There are all of us who continue to see more in ourselves than what we ought and need to see more of our need for Jesus. But I believe there's also an anticipatorial nature to them. In other words, there's something that is already not yet that we are looking forward to. In other words, we are not ever going to receive the fullness of the comfort that we're going to talk about today until Christ returns. We might get momentary down payments, glimpses of what is to come, but we have not received the substance. So that's how we're going to be thinking about these throughout. If you take notes, here's our big idea. It's this. You ready to write this down? It's that Christ's kingdom does not mean that you will not mourn, but it does promise that God himself will comfort you. Now first, we see happy are those who mourn in this verse, the first half of verse 4. But what does Jesus mean by blessed or happy and flourishing are those who mourn? Well, this word for mourn, it, it really, the word behind it means in the English a lot like what it sounds like. It's, it's a sense of sorrow or grief that is inward that often goes outward with expressions of, of tears. Uh, clearly, Jesus expects this statement to arrest the attention of his Jewish and Gentile audience. He, he wants to get their attention on the front end. Now, the first part, happier the sad, makes no sense without the second part, for they shall be comforted. But before we get to the comfort, we need to think about some observations about mourning here. I've got four. Here's the first. First here again, Jesus announces that he is fulfilling Isaiah 61's prophecy. In other words, Jesus is not just bringing in something that's brand new. He's actually pointing to the fact that he is the fulfillment to what the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 promised would come about. It was there that he said that there would be a spirit-anointed conqueror, anointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. See, Isaiah says that he would give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. 
Jesus signals the reversal of the fortunes of those who mourn in Zion and over Zion. And because of Zion's sin, they are so many, their sins. See, the kingdom has arrived with King Jesus, but the center of the party is going to be a cross and not a cake. Now, hear me, there is, I believe, going to be cake at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But before we get to the cake, we are told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That image of a cross is not meant to be a picture of a comfy life. The the center of Christianity, it's not a lazy boy. It is an instrument of death, the death that actually brought us forgiveness with God, peace with God. See, the kingdom is here, just not fully. And your joy, it will be mixed with mourning if you are truly in a good place. If you're in a good place, you will mourn. There will be a unique kind of otherworldly mourning that will come into your soul if you have been united by faith with Christ, with God's King. Now, I'm pretty sure that there will be cake at that marriage feast of the Lamb, but Jesus tells his followers, you and me, that we need to take up our cross and follow him. And hear me, that is the flourishing life according to God's King. Now, as we look at this, We need to recognize that there's a second observation important here in the Scriptures, and that is that not all mourning is happy. Now, that might sound obvious at first blush. Not all mourning is happy. And not every mourning comes with a promised comfort as a response to that morning. This isn't an unqualified promise. In other words, you'll notice that Jesus is speaking in the context of a a list of Beatitudes in his gospel, which takes place in the Bible as a whole. And we need to understand how this fits into the grand scheme of what Jesus Christ is doing. See, the Bible is replete with cautions against worldly mournings that lead to death and not to life. Not every path of mourning leads to the kind of promises that Jesus is speaking of. I mean, just consider some of the different types of worldly mournings in the Bible. Thomas Watson has his, these are mine. See, each of these, these forms of mourning that we see throughout the Bible that I'm about to talk about, they almost look repentant. It's like they're just right there at the finish line, but they don't quite punch through. And so we want to look at each of these to make sure we understand what a a godly, biblical-type morning looks like. One, mopey morning is not true morning. Now, here's what I mean. Jesus warns of this. If you remember in Matthew 6, 16, he's talking about that, that person who disfigures their face to look gloomy during fast to be seen by others. There's an outward expression of sorrow and mourning. But what Jesus says is, what's wrong here is, what? The audience is not God. The audience is those who are looking on him or her. And what they want is to have a certain sort of perspective that is not really authentic to who they are. It's hypocrisy. See, Jesus is not asking for his people, catch me, to pretend to be happy when they mourn on the one hand, right? That's not what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, just like sing the happy song with the world and you'll be fine. 
And on the other hand, he's not telling us to pretend to be mopey and mourning when in our heart there's really nothing about the gospel that has come in and convicted us and caused us to weep over our sin. See, moping externally for attention without a heart that mourns is hypocritical. But not only that, recall that the Scripture also speaks to another kind of mourning, a blame-shifting kind of mourning. You remember in 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul has sinned against God. And he's been caught dead to rights. And man, it looks really good as it, it takes off because he mourned outwardly for his sins. He, trans, he, he confessed his transgressions. And then he went on to explain himself. I feared the people. Boy, doesn't that sound subtle but so familiar. Genesis 3. It is that woman that you gave me. Which means it's really your fault and her fault and then my fault. But if it wasn't for you guys, it never would have happened. Maybe you've heard this in other forms. The devil made me do it. My special circumstances contributed to this unique situation. If that did not happen, I would never have sinned. I was set up. Maybe you blame other stuff than people, tangible things. You know, it's in a unique financial situation. I had too much gluten to eat. It just kind of affects me. I mean, all kinds of things we point to. We blame shift. But not only that, we're warned in the scriptures of a lustful mourning. You'll remember Amon in 2 Samuel 3, that son of David, horrible dude. He actually has this strong desire for his daughter. And, and we're told in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel that he looked haggard day after day because he lusted after his sister and eventually violated her. I think we just all need to take note that there is a tendency, I believe, in all of our hearts to long to have someone else, to have companionship, and that thing that we mourn over, and it could be a good thing that we desire, if unchecked, it could turn to something that is not healthy. And so we need to constantly, if you're, if you're a single guy or a single girl, we need to constantly sort of take note of that. If we are married, we need to take note of that. We need to be aware that good mornings can sometimes turn into lustful desire. See, the good desire for companionship and intimacy that is not a bad thing. God created us for community. But it can, if unchecked, turn into a, a God that causes us to literally be willing to sacrifice our own relationship with the Lord, the blood of others, to find the joy and the desire that companionship promises. That is treating a relationship as like a God. And what about the self-pitying mourning? Man, this is, this is my favorite. I love this one. We see it very early on in the scriptures when God punished Cain for killing Abel in Genesis 4. I would say that's a pretty bad sin. What about you? You kill your brother, your sister? Like, that's a bad thing. That's tough. The person that you should be most responsible for. The person you should be a keeper of. And Cain's response, his first response that we have from God, I mean from Cain to God is, oh, when he receives his judgment, oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Did you catch that? Cain, 
is more concerned about the consequence of his sin than his murder of his brother or his sin against God. See, our mournings reveal what we value most. And if we do not mourn our sin, it reveals that we don't really love Jesus most. And if we don't mourn our sin, we'll mourn anything and love anything. And that's not a way to live a life that promises eternal life. But I think there really is another question that we should be asking as we think about godly mourning. And that is this. Third, what does Jesus mourn about? You know, Jesus came and Jesus mourned. We celebrate the coming of a king, a king who mourned. Here's what's fascinating. In Jesus' day, one of the philosophies that was going around was that of the Stoics. And they understood emotion, emotion like mourning, to be a weakness. And so here comes Jesus, the king of God's kingdom in heaven. And he is known as the man of sorrows. In fact, as you look at the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of this great conquering king who would come, but he also, in the middle of his book, speaks of one who would come as a suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53.3, he described this suffering servant, saying he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, the eternal Son of God, who enjoyed eternal joy at the right hand of the Father, took on flesh as the man of sorrows. Man, that is quite the exchange. Trading in eternal joy to come and take on the sorrows of humanity. You know, many have noted that if you look at Jesus and his life throughout the scriptures, we see a lot about the, the emotional life of Jesus and uh, the kinds of emotions that he displays. He shows himself to be a man who was angry at points, a man who mourned, uh, but we don't ever see Jesus laughing. I don't think that that means that Jesus does not come to usher in a fullness of joy when he returns. But his life was not noted as a life of ease and laughing. I don't imagine Jesus watching a lot of sitcoms or going to a lot of comedy shows. See, many have noticed that Jesus never laughed during his earthly ministry. He was a a Savior who mourned. But what was it that he mourned over? We know that Jesus never mourned over his sin. He did not sin. He could not sin. But he wasn't just sinless. He was incapable of sinning. But Jesus did mourn. We find a couple of examples. Jesus, in John eleven thirty five, 35, we were told that Jesus wept. If you're looking for a, a good place to start memorizing Scripture, I would commend John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. That's one verse in the hopper. But what was it that he was weeping over? It was over the, the death of his friend Lazarus. It was right before he raised him from the dead. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, and yet he still wept over his death. Why? Because he saw the effects of sin on this broken world that leads to death. He lamented that. He mourned over that. But not only that, we find that Jesus weep again in Luke 19. And he is weeping over Jerusalem. And the reason he's weeping over them is he anticipated their future destruction because he says, they did not see the way to peace with God. It was hidden from their eyes. He's weeping over their future. In fact, one author understands that just as Isaiah 61 sees mourning over Zion, 
refusing to repent and believe, this beatitude specifically calls for mourning to be the condition of being a part of the true Zion that is to come. I think this means, hear me, that it's okay to mourn the effects of living in a broken world like sickness and death. Now here's three things to know about gospel concerning mourning. Here's gospel-centered mourning. Three things that we need to, to know. First, God's grace leads to mourning sin. It is the grace of God in our lives that we mourn our sin. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to do this. We even see this in the Old Testament, Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 says, mourning is a gospel grace. Here's how he says it. I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. You're like, oh, that's great. And then he says, and they shall mourn. You might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought it was spirit of grace, we're in a good place. Like, Genevieve, I'm happy. But here it says that grace lands and mourning breaks out because we understand our sin before a holy and righteous God. I mean, isn't that what we see in Isaiah 6? Isaiah comes before the Lord, and he's like, finally you showed up, I'm in a good place. No, he says, I just realized how sinful I am. I'm in need of atonement, atonement that only you can provide. So we should pray that God would reveal our sin to us and help us to rightly mourn it. Not mourn it to the the point of just confessing it. Not just mourn it to the the point where we actually bring retribution for what we've done. Not mourning to the place where we actually are saying that I am a sinner in desperate need of salvation, but to the point where we actually repent and turn from the way we are living, hoping in the God who helps the hopeless. That's what repentance looks like. Second, we need to know this about gospel-centered mourning. Jesus' brother James says we should mourn our sin. He he says that we ought to do it. Now, James is interesting. He's Jesus' brother. And if you read through his book, it's interesting how connected it is to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And James, he seems to reflect a lot about his teaching there. And in 4.9, James 4.9, he aims at mourning sin. He says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And in the context of calling people to flee their sins, he says this, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to gloom. Here's the thing that we, I want just to be aware of this morning. If we become so calloused, so hardened in our hearts towards our sin against God and others, that we do not mourn it, then I believe we have begun to lose sight of the gospel. When we begin to think that, you know, sin, it's like grace covers it all, we're fine, it's not a big deal. Obedience, it's a nice sort of trophy to add to the mantle, but the mantle of Christianity is still there without the trophy. That's not the vision that we see in the New Testament of true Christianity. See, 1 John 1.9 calls us to deny, not to deny that we have sinned or to dismiss it or to blame others or to act like we understand it outwardly without a contrite heart. But instead, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He, being God, is faithful and just both to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when we sense that we have sinned, we come to God, we confess it, we turn from it, and we look to Christ. Third, third thing about gospel-centered mourning. 
Paul says we should mourn the sins of others as well. Some of you, if you're like me, you're like, man, I just don't even mourn my own sins as I ought to. But boy, the Scriptures seem to point to the fact that we ought to be mournful even over the sins of others. So here's what I want to do as as we end. And this is by far the shorter section. I want to answer three quick questions as we end. Who comforts us? How do they comfort us? When do we get comfort? First, who comforts us? When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, I take that for, for they shall be comforted, to mean because. In other words, this is the ground of knowing that you are flourishing as a mourner and in a good place. It is because you are promised that you will be comforted. But comforted by who? Well, I take this to actually be what they call a divine passive. In other words, the the one who is acting here, his name is not mentioned, but it is everywhere implied. It is God who will bring you comfort. God himself. What we need, what we need is comfort that only our triune God can provide. And boy, do we see his character as one that brings comfort to his people throughout. You remember in Isaiah 41, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, even in your sin, even in your brokenness. I want comfort for you. I I don't want pain and suffering. I want you to experience joy. See, what we need is what only God can provide. Now, the question is, how are we comforted though? Well, I believe the text gives us a little window into this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. If you got your Bible, you might want to go ahead and look there. I just want to make a few observations about how we are comforted. Now, you'll remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paul spent a good deal of time laying some corrective wood on a church that had all kinds of ways that they were divided. They should be united, but they're divided. And he corrects them throughout, though he displays much love for them. But he opens 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 saying this, Blessed, now this is a different word than what we find in the Beatitudes, a different kind of word for blessed. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Now, let me just lay out three things, you can meditate on these later, that we see here. Encouragements about How are you comforted? One, God is the Father of all comfort. Paul says that explicitly. Now, let me ask you this. Is there comfort that comes from anywhere else ultimately than God? There is nowhere else to go for comfort than to God. He is the God of all comfort. There are some fake comforts, sins that promise all kinds of comfort that never make good on what they promise. But only God himself gives you comfort. Now, here's, I think, just one application of this. That means that if you are finding yourself in a place of discomfort, life has gotten hard, you sense the brokenness acutely, that means that prayers need to go up in volume, not down. Because where else do you have to go? I mean, so many of us, we we lose so much, and it's almost like the more we lose, the less willing we are to go the one place we need to go, which is God in prayer. And it should be the opposite. God is the Father of all comfort. Second, notice that God comforts us in our afflictions. God does not necessarily remove the discomfort. Did you notice that? 
He doesn't say, pray to the God of all comfort. And magically, like Philip in Acts 8, you will be displaced and pop in a new area that's not hard, doesn't have discomfort at all. It's not what he says. God doesn't necessarily remove the discomfort. He might. But Christianity means taking up our cross and following Jesus. Third, God brings us comfort through those who have experienced discomfort. Did you see that? Paul seems to think that at least one reason that he had to go through really difficult things, and oh, did he go through difficult things. But he says one reason. I'm sure there are many. But one is so that I experience the comfort of God so that I could then be used by God to comfort you. Do you see that? That is true of, I believe, every Christian. God does not waste suffering. He does not waste his experience of giving you comfort. He is actually calling you into a ministry of comforting others. So you need a local church of people covenanting with you. You need to pursue knowing and being known. And I'm not talking about like Facebook known. Like here's a a highlight reel of my life. And by the way, we always smile and we never frown. See, God brings comfort in real time to his people through his people. Now, last question. Who are we comforted? I mean, when are we comforted? Another text. You can turn here if you want to. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. When are we comforted? See, Jesus promises that God himself is going to, to comfort us, but you might be thinking when. Now, here's the way my mind works. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The cross has not yet happened yet, but Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but we're hearing this on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. So, was this promise for that time? Or was that for today, when we are living as we await the return of Jesus? Or is this comfort solely something that's going to come when Jesus returns? I would say yes. Look with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17. This is what Paul writes to a young fledgling church. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them. Notice that the comfort comes in, in the past. Did you see that? He comforted us with an eternal comfort. Jesus Christ and God our Father loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Eternal, like, that's positive and negative, right? That comes through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He came at the cross And it was at that point that he opened up for us a comfort that comes from heaven. Now, if you're a non-Christian here, let me just encourage you. I want you to know that the Bible says that outside of believing in and living for Christ, it is an uncomfortable world. It's uncomfortable for Christians. It's uncomfortable for non-Christians. Christians have this whole other area of discomfort because we know we were made for another home that we're waiting for. But every person that lives in this world experiences the brokenness of it. The Christian We understand, though, that that brokenness is because of our sin against God. And that apart from God, the discomfort that we find here, even the greatest discomfort, is only a prelude to the discomfort that's coming for those who do not repent of living for this world and turn to Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done that, please do not leave today without putting your faith in Jesus. Talk to me, another Christian here. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. We want you to experience the joy that awaits us and the comfort that's available to us, not just at the last of days, but today. Now, I want to say that that comfort that comes through faith in the cross, that past activity, 
There's also a comfort, I believe, that is offered and available to us presently. Did you notice that he prays that Jesus Christ might comfort their hearts and establish them? He wants, it seems to say that they're in process in some sense. I mean, this really isn't with respect to time. He simply asks that it is done in this life. See, sometimes God changes our circumstances in the present, and he, he brings us comfort. We pray for the sick, and sometimes they are healed. We, we pray for a better job, and sometimes God blows our minds and gives us a better job. Sometimes He saves our marriages in a way that we give testimony to. But God doesn't always change our circumstances. And God's actually more concerned about our hearts, according to the Scriptures, than our circumstances. But this comfort also, this present comfort, also points to the future. Because we have, again, eternal comfort. See, this is the already not yet ultimate last day reality that we long for when the kingdom of heaven comes fully to earth, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are all kinds of pictures throughout the scripture, but I love what Revelation 21 envisions this. There we find John saying, this day when Jesus comes back is going to be a happy day. It's going to be like a wedding between Christ and his people. Ever been at a good wedding? I hope, it, I hope yours was a good wedding if you were married. And I hope there was, was dancing and joy and good cake and good food. It's a beautiful day, right? A celebration. That's what the last day is going to be like. But catch this. There's no crying. In Revelation 21.4, it says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a new day, a new day that we await, a new day of comfort and joy that is coming. That's why Paul frees us to grieve with those who grieve. But he, he says, but we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We have hope. First Thessalonians 4.13, he says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. We have hope. We have hope that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to set things right, that he's going to restore what's lost that he's going to wipe away our tears, past, present, and future. Already thought of them, already has them in a bottle. They are promises. He's going to restore what has been lost. This is what we have in Christ. See, Christ's kingdom doesn't mean that you're not going to mourn, but it does promise that God himself is going to comfort you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you are our heavenly God of comfort, that you are a God who stoops to sinners who have rebelled against you. And you give us words of hope and promise. Father, we praise you that we have a future to look forward to, trusting that you're going to set things right. Father, we pray that until that day comes, you would help us to be a people who mourn the right things, who mourn our sin, who mourn the sins of others, who look to you and only you for hope that only you can provide. Lord, help us to be a people of faith. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken torn and 
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we looked into the highlight of Abraham's life, which was going to the mountain in the land of Moriah to give Isaac as a burnt offering. This was a test God gave to Abraham. Not only was it a test of priority of love, whether Abraham loved God more than Isaac, but also a test of faith towards God's word. Today, we'll look into Genesis chapter 22. Here is verse 5. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. The word worship first appears here in the book of Genesis. The Hebrew word for worship is shaka. This word also means kneel down and bow down. This word has been used about two times previous to Genesis chapter 22. However, at that time, it was used to mean bow down. Let's read those two verses. First, let's read Genesis chapter 18 verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. The Hebrew word shaka was used for bowed low to the ground. Next is chapter 19 verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Lot also got up to meet the angels and bowed down with his face to the ground. The Hebrew word shaka was used here as well. In this way, the word shaka often means bow down. Now, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 5, this word is first translated as worship. Here's a tip for you when you do Bible study. When a particular word first appears in a scene, you should carefully look into it. When you do, you will realize the meaning of the word in a deeper way. This word shaka for worship is an example. The dictionary simply states that worship is to show reverence and adoration for a deity, honor with religious rites. Abraham said he will go worship and come back. He knew he had to give Isaac as a burnt offering. Isaac is the one whom Abraham loved. Therefore, we can define worship as the act of giving something we love to God. Let's also think about one thing. Where did Isaac come from? Isaac is definitely Abraham's son, but Isaac wasn't born out of Abraham's ability. He was a son gained from God's power. We can summarize worship in this way. Worship is the act of giving God the thing we love the most. Worship is the most precious thing God has given us 
and we are giving it back to Him. If we define worship in this way, then with this definition, I want us to reflect upon our individual worship. Of all the things God has given us, can we give the most precious thing back to God? I hope we could ask ourselves this question. There's something else we need to think about. In what way must Abraham give worship? It's not his own way, but the way God commanded. This is very important. Abraham gained Isaac from God. Abraham is worshiping by giving Isaac back to God. But what if he made the decision about how to do it? For example, if he said, God, I will give you my beloved son Isaac. But isn't a burnt offering too extreme since he would be killed? Instead, I will raise him well to be a worker for your kingdom. I'm sure you know why I'm saying this. We often listen to what God is asking us, but instead of following his thought, there are many times when we force our own thought upon him. We may say, I will be used by God in this way. I will give glory to God in that way. Of course it's good to be used by God and give glory to God. It's something to be thankful for. However, if those things are not in accord with God's plan, God's word, and God's thought, then those are done in vain and have no use. It's like how Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar. We have often experienced this. God gave us this heart, but our hearts will not allow it, and instead we request another method to God as if we're negotiating. Now, let's summarize worship again. Worship is giving back to God the thing we love the most out of all the things He has given us, but it has to be in the way God commanded. True worship is not given just because it's Sunday or because we have always done it, or because others are doing it. We must give the thing we love the most to God in every worship. This kind of worship can be explained in a more biblical way. Here is Romans chapter 12, verses 1-2. through 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worship in this age resembles a worldly show. The Bible tells us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but for some reason, our worship resembles the worldly shows more and more. Also, instead of giving God what He desires, we give Him what we want and mistakenly present it as worship. Also, being blessed, being moved, feeling good, and being restored has become our purpose of worship. Worship must be given properly and God must be the one we worship. We don't give worship to receive something. We must redefine our thought of worship and give proper worship and biblical worship that God deserves. Let's look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, as the two of them went on together. 
In this verse, where Abraham and Isaac are going up together, I see God and his son Jesus Christ. It's extraordinary when we read this verse word by word. First, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Isaac did not place the wood on himself. God also made his son carry the cross. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for his father's will to be done. What did Abraham carry? Abraham took the knife to kill his son and the fire to set his son on fire. The son carried the wood he would lie on. In many instances, we think that the Roman soldiers killed Jesus. Some people think that Pilate killed Jesus. Some say the Jews used the hand of a foreigner to kill Jesus. Furthermore, some confess, I am the sinner who killed Jesus. Of course, these are all correct. They're all true. However, strictly speaking, no one can make Jesus die. There is no one who can take Jesus' life away. John chapter 10 verse 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. That's right. Jesus is God's Lamb who carries the sin of the world, and God poured His anger of the sin of the world on His Son. Here is Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This means Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan and it pleased God. I see this from the scene of Abraham and Isaac walking. I'll read this verse again. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. The Bible portrays Abraham and Isaac each taking the necessary things for their roles while walking together. From this scene, I visualize Jesus going up Mount Calvary, and although we can't see it, I visualize Father God giving His Son Jesus the cross to carry as they walk the path together. In God's hand is the punishment of the anger towards sin as Jesus had to be killed. To save humanity, God and Jesus walked up the path together. This visual example is seen from Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah. It's an emotional scene of God's Son, Messiah Jesus, carrying the wooden cross he must die on while walking with Father God, who will put Jesus to death on the cross. While Abraham and Isaac were walking, Isaac asked, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? How did Abraham respond? Verse 8 says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Today, God provided a ram caught by its thorn in a thicket. Later on, God would provide his lamb for humanity. That person is God himself, so in essence, God is preparing himself. Today, 
we looked at the definition of worship. In the scene of Abraham's worship, we saw God and his son Jesus Christ. As we see the great resemblance between God and Jesus and Abraham and Isaac, we are moved and thankful for God and Jesus walking together and doing this work together. As those who have received life through such grace, we must live a more thankful life. I hope we can make this our new resolution. We'll end God of Abraham here. I'll see you next time. Goodbye. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.